As I just prayed, isn't it awesome that one of the things our church family has an opportunity to do is to make a difference in our, in, in, in our church family, in our community, through our children's ministry and student ministry. So we're thankful for all those who serve. What an opportunity for us as a church to uh, proclaim, great is the Lord. And as I got up here, I found a, a, a Nerf dart on my table. And as you walk around our church family, our church facility, you might occasionally come across a Nerf dart. That means that fun is being had, and that uh, and that people love students in the name of Jesus, including by shooting them with a Nerf bullet. Apparently, all right. Good morning. My name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors, and we're going to get into God's Word. And um, you ready for this? Are you ready? I mean, you might want to consider that. (laughs) Are we ready to hear from the Lord? You, you therefore, be perfect. Yeah, you. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Are you still ready for what God might have for us this morning? The Bible passage that we're about to study ends with that command. I'll tell you where to turn in just a minute. The Bible passage we are about to study ends with that command. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What are we supposed to do with that? Throw up our hands, get up, and walk out. Just just throw in the towel. Or... Since Jesus commands it, is it somehow possible for us to live it out? Let's see what God has to say. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. In a moment, we'll start reading at verse 43. Bring your Bible with you or open the Bible app on your device and find Matthew chapter 5. We'll start at verse 43. Uh, As you may know, we are in a series of messages we've entitled Kingdom Life as we teach through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And, uh, and so as we teach through this, this significant teaching of Jesus, we're, we're asking ourselves, what does a kingdom life look like? Instead of living in a kingdom built for one, instead of putting our time and energies into to striving to build and create and live in a kingdom of self, We're asking God to show us through his word here what it looks like to submit to Jesus as king and to live in his kingdom, to be transformed from the inside out to the point where we can be citizens of the kingdom of God, where we can be representatives of the kingdom of God and live kingdom lives. So Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 43, Jesus speaking, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, we've been, we've been studying different topics over the last few weeks where, where Jesus brings up teaching that, the, that God's people have heard before. He's usually referencing the Old Testament and explaining, okay, here's what you've heard. Here's the law as you've heard it. And now let me help us to really fulfill it, to, to hear God's heart, to know the purpose of the law. So here, Jesus is doing that again. You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You have heard it said? Really? 
Which part of that have they heard for sure? Which part of that command have they heard from God's word? Love your neighbor. Definitely in the Bible. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Really? Where'd you find that? And see, that's what's happened. Is God's word has been taught, and over a period of time, sinful human beings tweak it. Make it into what we want. Add to it. And so, who do we love? Yes, we're absolutely called to love our neighbor. And so then, hmm, maybe it's convenient for me to think, okay, neighbor, neighbor, that's people I like, people I get along with, my people. So I'm going to love them. Yep, I can follow God's word. And since I'm, since I'm, worried, since I'm in the midst of um, defining people then, since I'm defining who my people are and who it's comfortable for me to love, well, then I'm automatically inclined as a human, maybe in my sinful nature, to group people, to divide people. And if there's people I love and there are people like me and there are people that are easy to love, then there must be people that are not. And if God wants me to love these people, then I'm just going to extrapolate and make up that the rule is to love them and not love them. Oops, hate them. You have heard it said, really? So I, I, I think one of the first things we can get from the Lord here as we begin this is, is let's be careful not to do that, that, to make that same mistake with our Bibles. Let's make sure to be careful when we say things like, well, yeah, the Bible says, but we have no idea where it says that. Let's be careful. Is it the Bible that says it? Or is it our human nature that says it? Or is it tradition that says it? Or is it our culture that says it but has passed it off as the Bible? Let's be careful when we say, hey, that's in the Bible somewhere. Find it. And see what God means by it. So you know, we know, as we've studied the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus uh, says he came not to abolish the Old Testament law. He says, I didn't, I didn't come to throw out the Old Testament law, to, to make fun of the Old Testament law and give you something new. He's saying, I came to teach the Old Testament law and I came to fulfill it, to add meaning, to, to flesh it out, to show you God's heart. Not just the letter of the law, but I want you to see the spirit of the law. That's what Jesus has been doing in the Sermon on the Mount. And so you and I, as followers of Jesus, as students of God's word, have an opportunity to not be satisfied simply with following the letter of the law, but, but seeking to hear from God, his heart, his intent, and, and his motives for what he wants to do through his word. Church family, Jesus changes lives. Anyone? <laughs> Remember, I'm, I'm okay with it. Remember, you can interact with me. Jesus changes lives. He's changed mine, and he's still doing it. It's one of the, my, my, it's one of the biggest reasons I'm standing up here is because Jesus changes lives, and I want that for you. And not just once way back when, but every day until you look him in the eyes. 
Jesus changes lives. He wants us to live out a kingdom life. The Sermon on the Mount, as we come on Sundays and study his word, as we get up every day and begin our day in God's word, it's to change us, not to just sit and absorb, not to go in one ear and out the other. Let's see what Jesus wants to do with us. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but Jesus continues in verse 44, but I say to you, Love your enemies. Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says, here's what you've heard it said, and here's how you've tweaked it to be easier to accomplish. Here's how you've separated people from easy to love to I don't want to love. And I'm going to tell you, that the heart of God that's supposed to come through his word here is for you to love your enemies. Love. I just like, I tolerate. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus commands here a revolutionary, radical love. A love like whose? A love like his. Jesus commands here a radical, revolutionary love from human to human, a love that is like his, a love without limits, a love that does not depend on whether the person deserves it or not, a love that is poured out regardless of easy to love, not easy to love. Loving others despite what they do or say to us. God's calling us to a revolutionary, radical kind of love, a love like the way God loves, despite what other people do or say to us. Uh. Why does God want to love through us? Why would God want that? Why would God want to pour out his amazing, great love for the world through us. Well, 2 Peter 3.9 tells us about the heart of God, that God doesn't want anyone to perish, that he wants everyone to reach repentance. God, we have a God who, who is mighty and on high and created all things and created you, and he created you to be in a relationship with him, and not just you, but everyone. And by, the Bible says he does not want anyone to perish. He wants everybody to come to repentance to come to the end of themselves, to realize we can't save ourselves, to realize our sin separates us from God, and to repent and to turn from that life and turn to God. That's what God's heart is. And we see that grace of God in this passage as we continue verse 45. We left off middle of verse 45, and we see God's grace as the passage continues in the second part of 45. For God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. Listen to God's grace poured out to just those that he likes. No, everyone. 45, halfway through 45, for God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. This is what we call common grace. This is, where, this is grace of God that's enjoyed by all human beings, not just believers. And it includes things like the sun and rain and his provision and his working in the world. And praise God for that grace. 
Praise God for that grace. And praise God that, that us as followers of Jesus, those that are in Christ, uh, his grace continues to be saving grace. Praise God that for those of us that have been saved, that common grace continues and his grace becomes saving grace. Listen, with, listen I'm not going to put this on the screen right away. I'll put one verse in a minute. But listen to Romans 5, starting at verse 6. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Think about it from a human perspective. Who would we die for? For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Now here's verse 10, and this will be on the screen. For if while we were his enemies, for if, we were, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. I mean, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. Our tendency is to group people, and guess which group we put ourselves in? The good guys. And here's God's word confronting us that apart from him, prior to our salvation, prior to knowing and following Jesus, while we were enemies, we were enemies, we were rebelling against God, we were going our own way, and while we were enemies, God set about his rescue plan. God sent his son to save and to rescue, to reconcile us to himself. The gospel is the amazingly good news that God rescues sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. D.A. Carson wrote uh, in something I read this week that God loved rebellious sinners so much that he sent his son. God loved rebellious sinners so much that he sent his son. So as followers of Jesus, we, we live out the ways of Jesus. As followers of Jesus, we, we, are to, we are to look to him and his character and his goodness. And as he pours his love into us, as he transforms us from the inside out, then we are to live out the ways of Jesus to those around us. And the ultimate demonstration, as we just read in Romans 5, um, the ultimate demonstration of God's love for us is the cross. The cross demonstrates how much God loves you, how, how, to the lengths to which he was willing to go to pull you out of your sin, to make, take you out of being his enemy, to, being out of, to call you out of being a rebellious sinner and into his family. And so as followers of Jesus, we, we, are, we follow Jesus, we live out the ways of Jesus, and that includes really loving people. And not just really loving people that are easy to love or like us or our people, but loving all people, the ones that he wants to save. And so as our passage continues in verse 46, we see some 
some examples of, of love or not, or, you know, is our love real? How do we demonstrate our love to those around us? Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? At the time, the tax collectors were a despised group of God's people who were siding with the government. Seemingly, they seemed to be siding with the government more than God's people, and so they were despised. And so that's why they're used as an example here. Back to 46. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than anybody else? Do not even the Gentiles, do, do not even those that are not in God's family do that. The world tends to love conveniently. The, the, the examples we might have around us too much are to love as comfortable, as convenient, to love who we want and how we want. But our call in this passage, Jesus' call is to a radical, revolutionary kind of love, a love that is like God's love, a love that goes beyond. Look what we know about, about God from 1 John 4. So we have come to know and to believe the love of God or the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. God is love. That's who he is. That's his character. And so as followers of Jesus who are being transformed into the likeness of Jesus, we are to love. But it's not just this passage, is it? It's not just this command in this passage that we are to love. Remember we said, Jesus changes lives. Jesus gets a hold of us and gets into our hearts and minds and transforms us from the inside out, making us into new people, giving us a new heart and new mind and new desires and new actions and words that are changed. Jesus transforms. It's not just this passage where we're to follow Jesus' example of loving others, including our enemies. It's really this whole section of Scripture, isn't it? This whole section of Scripture is a high-calling to increasingly live out the ways of Jesus. And so then we see that. We see that high calling. We see the bar raised. We see this intimidating challenge as we come to verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And it's still, it's still intimidating and, and, it, and it catches us. You, therefore, must be perfect. We've, we've, we've been studying a whole chapter here in Matthew 5 of Jesus speaking, this incredible Sermon on the Mount teaching, this incredible contrasting of the Old Testament law and then telling us the heart of God and what it really looks like to live a kingdom life. And this section of Scripture, if we're honest, is kicking our butts. Pardon me. If we're, if we're letting this section of Scripture speak to us, then it should be kicking our tail end. And, so we, and then we come to verse 48, this high calling to live out the ways of Jesus, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And, and we have to wonder, how? Is that possible? 
What does that look like? Well, first of all, 2 Corinthians 5.21, here's one of the first things I'll mention, and here's one of the places we look. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. One way it's true is, is what we see in this passage. One way it's true that in Christ we are perfect is because of what we call uh, imputed righteousness. When you are saved, when, you're a, when you become a follower of Jesus by realizing you can't save yourself and you call on Jesus as God, as Son of God, as Savior, as Rescuer, as you give your life to him and you are saved, one of the things that happens at our salvation we call our justification, where we are made right with God, where sinful, rebellious me is put in right relationship with a holy and perfect God. At the moment of our salvation, we are justified. And I, I think part of that justification is this imputed righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus, look at that scripture on the screen, the righteousness of Jesus put on us. The cross is a spectacular turning point in the history of the world. And the key point of our salvation, that when Jesus went to the cross, he took the sin, our sin, the weight of the world on him, and he gave us his righteousness. Church family, do you know that when God looks down upon you that are in Christ, he does not see your sinful rebelliousness, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Be perfect as your father is perfect. One way that's true is because positionally, theologically, in Christ, you have the righteousness of Christ. The only one who lived perfect. So we, so we can say, awesome, my salvation includes positional righteousness. Righteousness because of Jesus. But what do I experience? I, I, don't, I don't find myself to be living without sin. I know the things I think that I shouldn't. I know the things that come out of my mouth that are hurtful. I know the ways in which I still sin and rebel against God's best. So what's up with that? Well, 2 Corinthians 3.18 is on the screen now. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, into the image of Christ. We are being transformed. So not only are we positionally righteous because of our justification, but our salvation also begins a process we call sanctification, or being transformed into the image of Christ that we see in that verse. So this is an ongoing work. Justification, at your point of salvation, justification is done. Sinful you has been made right with a perfect and holy God. Done. But at part of, another thing in our salvation is the beginning of the sanctification process, and that's ongoing. That's the Spirit of God living within us, changing us from the inside out, making us into new people. As we behold the glory of the Lord, we are transformed into the image of Jesus. And so God is, um, God is perfect. We're challenged by that verse 48, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But that's, that's the one we look to as perfect. God is the perfect one. He is perfect character. And Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the law. Jesus is God. And so as followers of Jesus, we are to pursue his perfection. 
And it is a high calling. We are to pursue the perfection of God. And the examples in this chapter have given us examples of how we can live more fully into obeying God's law, how we can live kingdom lives that increasingly honor God. We are to pursue his perfection. But don't forget the part I keep mentioning. Jesus changes lives. It's not your efforts. It's not trying harder. It's not reading the Sermon on the Mount over and over and again and kicking yourself where you're failing and, and, and giving yourself check marks where you think you might be okay. Jesus changes lives. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's possible because Jesus changes lives, because Jesus lives within us, because we have his help, his power, and his spirit living within us, empowering us to obey. Jesus changes lives. And so when we hear the command, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, we don't have to throw in the towel and walk out and give up because Jesus lives within us and he can help us to live out the ways of Jesus and be increasingly conformed to the likeness of Christ. Is that good news? So the Sermon on the Mount that we're studying is chapters 5, 6, and 7. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And today, we are concluding chapter 5. And so, uh, we've come to a, a somewhat natural stopping point. And we're going to pause the Kingdom Life series, because this week, you are going to give thanks to God for all that he has given you. And then when we gather again next Sunday, it's the first Sunday of Advent, the kickoff of our celebrating the Christmas season, that our great God came to be with us. And so we're going to finish chapter 5 today. We're going to pause the Kingdom Life series. We're going to spend the next few Sundays uh, celebrating Advent. Advent's a word that just reminds us of the coming of Christ, his arrival. We celebrate the, his arrival 2,000 years ago, God into our world. And, and, and his first Advent 2,000 years ago reminds us to look forward to his second Advent, his second coming that he will be back and set all things right. So you ready to celebrate Christmas together? I am. So ending chapter five then is a good opportunity for us to review a bit, a bit as well. Verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So look with me if you would, look back in your Bible, start back at maybe verse 21 or so. Look, look back at the topics we've covered in the last few weeks. Start at verse 21, then work your way back to where we are. Look at some of those topics that we've covered. Look at some of those areas of life that Jesus wants to work in our lives. A bit tough to see some of those topics. A bit painful, perhaps, because they're challenging, because they're convicting because we know we haven't yet arrived, because we might like to live out the letter of the law, but we don't always know God's heart of the law and, and live out Jesus' fulfillment of the law. It should be difficult. It should be convicting. It should be challenging. And yet, Jesus changes lives. 
Have I said that before? Let's see how this is encouraging. If we review these topics in the Sermon on the Mount, if we, res- if we res- uh, review these ways that, that we've been having our tails kicked, let's see how it's actually encouraging because let's see how God wants to help us live for him. Let's review these thinking about what kingdom life looks like rather than kingdom of self. Because as we, if we live, if we desire instead of living in a kingdom of one and putting all of our energy and time into building a kingdom of self, if we submit to Jesus as king and recognize that his kingdom is here, it is unfolding, and it will be fulfilled and complete in the future, if we recognize that Jesus is at work, that Jesus is king, that this is his kingdom, and he wants to help us to live kingdom lives, we will do these things, starting, with, uh, starting at verse 21. And, and, I, and if, as you just kind of glance at those topics, I'm just going to kind of recap them very briefly. So just maybe just watch, through, or, you know, look through your Bible, but listen to these kind of recap summary statements. As, as we live kingdom lives because of Jesus' work in our lives, we will not only um, avoid murder, but we won't kill a person's identity or their worth or their value through our anger or slander, or defamation. Not only as we live kingdom lives will we shun adultery, but we will grow in overall purity, in, in, our, in purity of heart and mind and action, doing whatever it takes, going to any extent to avoid sexual immorality. With, with lives submitted to Jesus as king, with living for him and not ourselves, we won't try to look for ways out of our marriages, looking for divorce loopholes, but will respect God's intent that marriage is sacred and permanent. Kingdom lives will be so reliable, as God works in us, our kingdom lives will be so reliable in word and deed, our daily interactions, the little things we do and say will be so reliable that we don't need to use an oath or swear to this or that in order for people to believe that we're trustworthy. Instead of responding to being wronged with retaliation, fighting back, we will see the pain that we endure. We will see difficulty as an opportunity to serve all people. And then today's passage reminds us that true disciples, true followers of Jesus, um, have such a renewed heart, are finding their, their strength and their value and their identity in God's perfect love, such that we'll be able to love the world of sinners around us, including those that are not like us, including those that have said and done mean things to us, including those that we might try to characterize as not our people and put them in the enemy camp, by the grace of God, we'll be able to love those people, recognizing that they are the ones that Jesus came to love and save. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We know that that's true in Christ, his imputed righteousness. God sees the righteousness of Christ. But again, 
But are we going to experience that righteousness? When, when Jesus commands us to be perfect as the Father is perfect, I, I still know that's not what I'm experiencing. But is that, what's God, is that what God is doing? Look at the screen, 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when Jesus appears, when he comes again, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Wow. Our sanctification process will be complete. We have been justified, past tense. You are saved. You are made right with God. Sanctification is ongoing. The Holy Spirit working in your life. Then when you look Jesus in the eyes, glorification. Your salvation will be complete. We shall see him as he is, and we shall be like him. And so in the meantime, so that is coming. That is the hope for the future. That is the hope of what God is doing in your difficult circumstances, in your ups and downs, as you entrust yourselves to following Jesus no matter what. The work he is doing in you, changing you, making you into a new person will result in that. That's a hope for the future, isn't it? And so then in the meantime, what do we do? One of the commentators I studied this week put it this way. He encourages us to have a restful dissatisfaction. While we wait for that hope of transformation, of seeing Jesus face to face, looking him in the eyes and being like him, as we await that day, we are to have a restful dissatisfaction, meaning we can be restful, we can be content, we can be satisfied with the work that God has already done in our lives, and he's done a lot, hasn't he? Saved you and is transforming you. We can be content and satisfied with God's work in our lives and yet ready to move on, ready to press forward toward maturity, ready to seek God's heart, ready to listen to the Sermon on the Mount and increasingly live out the ways of Jesus. This idea of restful dissatisfaction is accepting our imperfection, accepting that we haven't arrived yet, accepting our tendency to sin, yet desiring to move toward the goal of perfection because Jesus changes us, because he's at work, because you don't have to. We can pursue his perfection because Jesus is helping, because he lives within us, because his spirit is empowering us to live for him. Father in heaven, thank you for your love. Thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Thank you for the cross, the ultimate demonstration of your love. This morning, God, we have been challenged. The bar has been raised on who we love and how we love. But it's not just a high calling where we're left to our own efforts. God, we thank you for the ultimate demonstration of love at the cross. We thank you that you showed us your love, that while we were still sinners, you sent your son to die for us. So God, help us to daily consider the cross and to see it as the pivotal action of the, in the history of the world, as the, as the ultimate example of your love for us. Help us to ponder the cross today and always, and may we love because you first loved us. Use us as you see fit. God, change us and mold us and shape us in such a way that as your love pours into us, we pray that your love would overflow out of our lives and to those around us. 
to those we know, to those we don't know, to those that are our people and the ones we don't yet know, and to the people that are like us and to the people that are different than us and to the people we'd count as friends. And even, God, by your grace, may your love overflow out of our lives to those we see as enemies. Not because we're great, but because great are you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.